You're listening to a 58 Ember production. Welcome to another episode of Discover Act, brought to you in part by Case IH. I am your host, Natalie, a rancher and pharmacist from Nebraska. And I am Tara, a dairy farmer and environmental scientist from New Mexico. And we are covering this week the top three trending news articles in the ag and food space. And we are bringing you a mini interview from our favorite wool company from Montana, Duckworth. And it is going to be a fabulous episode. For everyone who wants a piece of sheep trail, now is your chance to get a little piece of sheep trail and just uh, further understand, I guess, that purpose behind it and close that loop from sheep to shelf. It's, it's pretty cool, the conversation we're going to have. Yeah. And what's cool is when we recorded this with Evan Helley last week, he was coming like down from sheep trail where they were moving the sheep from summer pasture down to winter pasture. So it felt very closing of a chapter, I guess, for sheep trail for me. They posted a photo and the sheep were in snow and I tagged you and reminded you that instead of doing sheep trail in the summer up, I'm like, we could be doing sheep trail right now, which would not have been as exciting. I don't think. I said I was unwell when I got sent that photo. <laughs> like I'm not okay with snow. I'm not okay with cold weather. So we have an exciting little bit of news this week that we signed with a network called 58 Embers. So if you've listened to last week's episode or if you're listening to this one, you might have heard a little jingle at the beginning and a jingle at the end introducing 58 Ember. Yeah, and we truly couldn't be more excited. I feel like when we launched this, we knew at some point it would be a big goal of ours to sign with a podcast media company. We didn't know when that would take place, if it would be sooner rather than later, or um, you know, just our timeline of when that happened. But we always had really big hopes and dreams of that. So to see that come together and to be able to announce that was really, really exciting, at least for me personally, and I'm, I'm certain the same for you. Yeah, I think that's one of the worst things about our long distance um, relationship, friendship, business relationship is it makes it hard to stop and kind of like celebrate these moments because we're not together. So I do feel like we're like, okay, we signed like, yay. Okay. Like, and then it was like already like on to the next one in very like Tara and Natalie fashion. But um, next time we get together, which will be next week, we, I feel like we need to like have a cheersing toast because it feels like a big accomplishment. They're just like a little home for us. Uh, I have not feel like I have not talked to you in forever. I have been on like a whirlwind weekend. I was in San Diego um, area this weekend. And then yesterday, which was Monday, the girls and I flew straight from San Diego to Chicago. I I feel like I am like a seasoned traveler and I did, it was a bad decision on my part to end vacation starting a business trip. But here we are. So how are you? What have you been up to? What have you been doing? There are many times that I question your decisions of back-to-back events and you just roll with it. Like even when you went from sheep trail to Canada and then back home, I was like, are you <laughs> that sure? That was a lot. <laughs> are you sure? Like this is, you know, shame, shame you once, shame on Tara, shame you twice. Oh, wait, no. How's that go? Shame you once, <laughs> shame on them. Shame you twice, shame on Tara. And I feel like you have been shamed multiple times. So at this point, it's really only your own fault, Tara. I know. And I didn't even tell you about our travel day yesterday. It was like, it was just not the travel day. I needed like a smooth travel day. Um, There was a security breach in the San Diego airport. So they had to shut down all flights and we were stuck in security for, I don't know, like an hour, almost missed our connection in Denver. And then ended up on the tarmac for three hours before our flight took off. So it was just like, I just, it wasn't the day I needed, but we're here now. We're in Chicago and it's um, beautiful and crisp and fall feeling all the fall feels. I saw a meme the other day that was like, finally falls here. We can stop pretending we're like extroverted people and doing things. And I was like, yes, that's how I feel. We can just stay home and read books and eat soup. (laughs) 
Maybe that's why I like summer so much. I do think that is a part of it. Like I love being out and seeing people and and doing things as we've been discussing <laughs> for the last five minutes. Wow. That just explains so many things in my life. <laughs> oh, while you have been stuck on the tarmac, I have pretty much just been reading a book ferociously. I started Fourth Wing and I'm deep into it, very into it. I started it last night and I think I read like three sentences before I fell asleep from exhaustion, but I am excited. I wish you had, I wish you had shared this three days ago when I was, when you were stuck on the tarmac. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or when I was on a, like a vacation with my sister, just like reading books while she was like chasing after my children. Um, yeah, that would have been really nice. Uh, so thanks for that. But no, I started it now. So what do I, what, what do I need to know about it? Well, here's the thing. I think I'm so into it because I'm listening to it on Audible. I have Audible credits to use up before I cancel my Audible subscription. So I downloaded, I don't know, I think I have like five or six books queued up to read right now. And at this point, if I had a physical book in my hand, I would have already flipped forward to later on to read and satisfy my curiosity and know what happened. And then I could take the book at a leisurely place the rest of the time because I would have fulfilled my desire to know what has happened. And I cannot do that with Audible. And so I'm having to like just ferociously listen so I can appease myself and my curiosity. And so I think that's why I'm so into it is because I'm like, I just have to know what's going to happen. And I haven't sequatiated my quest yet. I can't believe you do that. Like what kind of sociopath are you? Every book I read. <laughs> Your face. <laughs> Every book I read, I flip forward and read, find the part I want to know what happens, read it. And then I'm like, I'm okay. I've never thought about doing that. um, But that makes a lot of sense. Because I mean, I think that's why I read so much is when I get into a book, I cannot stop until I know what's going to happen. And half the time, I can't even remember the book at the end because I've like read it so fast and just like had to know what happened. And you've never thought to just Flip a few pages? <laughs> no, that sounds terrible. That like sounds like that ruins everything. Oh, so it's, well, to each their own with books, right? Yeah, I guess so. I was going to say the other book I read for everyone tuning in that is maybe a book. Um, I was going to say slut. <laughs> but I don't know. Contestor? I don't know. I can't. <laughs> wow. I can't go from slut to anything else. I'm sorry. There is no segue for that one. <laughs> Um, I recently read the Jill Duggar, Jill Duggar book. I oh, forget the I title saw that now. in the airport. I mm-hmm. saw it and I feel like, does she have like a, a nose ring or something right now? Because mm-hmm. I was like, whoa, apparently I haven't been following the Duggars, but a lot's changed since the last time I uh, saw them on the TV. So I watched, I mean, I wasn't like an avid Duggar fan, but I definitely watched like a handful of episodes and was like aware of them. So when I saw the book, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, I thought her book was very fascinating, very well written, um, very heartbreaking, you know, from certain viewpoints. And um, yeah, it was a really good read. It was very quick. It's, I mean, it's not a long book, but sometimes I love just like a quick read like that. And yeah, I thought it was really interesting to hear her story. So that was, that, I would recommend that book. I thought it was good. Your book genres are vast. I mean, we have like, sci- we have sci-fi fantasy in here. We have like an autobiography from Jill Duggar and we have, you told us about Jason Derulo like a couple weeks ago. So if you want variety, follow Natalie's book club <laughs> that we have going you on here. You book slot too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maddie, producer Maddie said she only buys books in the airport, which I do. I feel like there is something about, that's probably why people love bookstores. There's something about going in and seeing all the covers and like just, I don't know, smelling the books and then selecting your book. But I'm a digital book girly. So 
Okay, let's get into it because we've got our mini interview today as well. So we want to start with thanking our sponsor, Case IH. To the men and women at Case IH, farming is a way of life, a life they live every day on millions of acres across North America. Get to know the farmers who work at Case IH and see how they bring that perspective into everything Case IH does. Visit BuiltByFarmers.com to see their stories and to even share your own. Built by Farmers, Case IH, a proud sponsor of the Discover Ag podcast. And we are full on in harvest over at our house. Uh, and so Daniel has been driving droning like a son of a gun. And we are going to be posting all of the case drone footage uh, over on my Instagram and his Facebook. So if you want to see some, we have summer harvest going on and winter planting going on. So it's kind of all the things are happening. My driveway looks like a highway. Uh, So we're going to be sharing some case over there. All right. Diving into the first headline you need to discover this week, title Starbucks develops coffee seeds that can withstand climate change effects. Starbucks recently announced that it has developed six new varieties of coffee seeds that can withstand the effects of climate change, which some experts say is critical for the future of coffee. I thought this was a an interesting marketing tactic almost. Um, it made me think about GMOs and how GMOs could have done a better job marketing themselves. Like in my mind, reading about this seed and this plant, I mean, I think it was selective breeding, not technically a GMO. I couldn't totally find the exact answer of that online. Maybe you have something to add. But I thought it was cool how they paired it or cool is probably not the right word, but it was smart of them to pair it with climate change, a topic that people want to focus on, that they want to solve. And so it made it more appealing to think about changing the gene or not changing the gene, selective breeding of the coffee bean. Absolutely. I think that every time I see a well-done article talking about maybe some like gene advancements or, you know, like this breeding, um, I always think how in contrast, how poorly done it is to the conversation of GMOs and just how afraid people are of that. But I feel like they would read this article and they would not have fear about their food. They would be like wonder and awe and it would almost be like hopeful where they're like, oh, great, there's a solution. Like it makes them feel more positive. Uh, A little fact that I thought was crazy. You and I do not drink coffee. I have completely given up caffeine and you are caffeine free as well. But Americans drink 527 million cups of coffee a day. That seems like crazy. The average American drinks three cups of coffee every single day. That is so crazy to me. I feel like if I have one coffee, I had one on Saturday morning. I was so hyped up the rest of the day. I can't imagine having three cups of that. I do think we're a bunch of humans just walking around as addicts in various forms. I always think coffee is just another addiction. And Luke's always like, but it's an addiction I love and I want. (laughs) And it's a socially acceptable addiction. So congratulations to all you coffee drinkers. So going back to the article, uh, most of the coffee consumed worldwide comes from actually just two species of coffee beans, the Arabica and the Robusta, which I think is absolutely fascinating thinking about how prevalent coffee is of a drink to think it only comes from two species. The problem is that Starbucks uses basically only the Arabica bean, and that is not as resistant to diseases or as like weather sturdy as the other one. And so that's why they're kind of like diving in and looking at this and seeing it as a problem is because they're basically using the sole bean and it is not a very, I would say, like sturdy bean. 
I do think this is a problem agriculture has across the board is that we find one product that does something really well, like whether that is, you know, you think about corn or even like bananas, I've seen it talked about. And we're like, okay, this variety is amazing. Let's just grow all of this variety. And we do really open ourselves up to like disease and resistance and all of these things that we're talking about because this each that single variety is only good at like maybe a handful of things. And then like you said, it's not resistant to, you know, heat or drought tolerant and like all these other things. And now we have a coffee bean that makes up 70% of our coffee, as you said. And so I do think, I don't know that I have a pro or a suggestion of how to solve that, but I do think it kind of like backs us into a corner then that we're like so dependent on this single crop surviving for all of all different types of food. No, absolutely. That's such a good point. There was actually a soundbite that was kind of the same thread of thought. Uh, it was, quote, more researchers are doing work that will provide climate resilient varieties because it's absolutely critical. Um, and that came from a grower and scientist at the Crop Trust, which is a, a nonprofit dedicated to conserving crop diversity. Um, so it's probably is a little bit bigger of a problem than maybe we realize. Yeah. Speaking of the farmers, uh, the small, like if you're a smallholder farmer and you were to have this like disease or the warmer temperatures come through, it obviously would like decimate your crop and loss of income for the entire year, which can mean you can like never rebuild. It also can take up to five years to regrow like the beans or the fruit essentially that the coffee comes from. So it's kind of crazy that like this wouldn't just impact you for a season. You're talking about like five years. That's a long time and a lot of years to make it through like a hardship, especially when you're a smallholder farmer. We often say on this podcast that we're talking about a, you know, ag industry and there wasn't a farmer interviewed and there was in this one. So kudos to this because they did interview this um, owner who is an Arabic coffee farm in Jamaica. Um, so I thought it was really great to see their sound bites in there. Going back to the problems about how the Arabica um, is susceptible to diseases, uh, a big one that it, they talked about was the coffee leaf rust. And that's a fungus that can overtake the plant when the conditions are warmer and wetter. And so Starbucks is really looking into cultivate, cultivating a bean or seed that would resist the leaf rust. And then the tests have been shown to also generate a higher yield in a shorter period of time, which I think was really uh, I don't know if they like specifically knew what they were <laughs> highlighting when they talked about that, but that is so important from a farmer standpoint because oftentimes we're asked to make, you know, sustainable changes or different practices in our operation. And sometimes it's at cost of like our production and the output, which um, essentially means you're asking us to do something, you know, for a loss or to an economic, you know, not an economic benefit. And so I thought it was really great to see that they're, you know, solving the problem, but could potentially even offer like a higher yield, which is for anyone listening who's not familiar with farming, you know, a yield is usually like uh, what you get from the crop that you're harvesting. And so uh, that's going to be like really key for farmers if they go to actually implement this on the ground to get farmers to say yes, is to be like, it's not going to affect your yield. Speaking of their like scientific research team, jobs I've never thought about, Starbucks agronomy team. I just love that they use the word agronomy in there. I was like, that's so great to see agronomy in there. It was like kind of fun. Gave me the warm fuzzies. I just always think of like, I guess, agronomy and like row crop production, right? Not in coffee beans. And I was like, oh, that'd be, I wonder like, where did you go to school? What did you get your degree in? The, I mean, probably agronomy, but did you get like coffee bean agronomy? Bing, bing, bing. We have, we have a winner. <laughs> but I mean, surely like most agronomy are teaching about like corn and soybeans. So I just was like, oh, what else did you study in order to end up on the Starbucks coffee team? Uh, but fascinating jobs. I know. We should interview the Starbucks agronomist. Do you want to know who it is? Oh, 
Yeah, I'm. That's funny. I'm going to be on a panel next week with the VP of Sustainability for Starbucks Dairy. So I will. I'll check in with her and see. Do a little research. Detective Gadget. Mm-hmm. I'll I'll ask her when we get off stage. Another fun fact about the farmers with Starbucks, they buy from almost a half a million farmers across 300 countries, and they give away a lot of these like climate resistant seeds, as they're being called, annually. They give away about 3 million, which I thought was really cool. So it's not when you think of, you know, some of the controversies around GMO seeds and different things like Starbucks is while they're developing this technology, they are not like keeping it close to them. They are dishing it out to anyone that will take it and be able to continue growing coffee. So I do think like good on Starbucks, like a little Starbucks positivity for this morning. Maybe you're drinking your Starbucks listening to this. The last thing I'll say that shocked me about this interview was that when they were talking about, uh, you know, like developing this varieties and then monitoring them, they did it through six generations, which is about 12 years. And I feel like that is a really long study. I would be so impatient. Talk taking it from the girl who flips to the book to read <laughs> what happens, you know, in the next hour. I don't think I'm cut out to be a 12-year agronomist studier. I would be out ski. Oh my gosh, that's hysterical. Okay, so kind of switching gears a little bit, but in the, the I feel like the fall theme of things, um, our sponsor for today is Good Rancher, and they have a new product, and I have to tell you about it because it actually I think it sounds amazing. Pumpkin spice bacon. I'm hoping that's in my next box. I'm getting it in my next box. That sounds amazing for fall. We should taste test it on the podcast. Oh, we should. That'd be, oh my gosh. I don't know. <laughs> I can't quite imagine us taste testing bacon all morning, but I mean, uh, it sounds like a dream to me. I don't know why you can't envision it because <laughs> I don't feel like we'd get anywhere past just taste testing the Good Rancher's bacon flavors. But I am personally really excited about that one. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think that we really love about Good Ranchers is knowing where your meat comes from. Like we've talked about this on the podcast. It's not to scare people away from grocery store, but if you care about where your product comes from, Good Ranchers is American meat delivered and it's not just meat. We have talked about this before, but I think it's worth mentioning, you know, that I really love that I now know where my seafood and my bacon and my pork come from. Like, I love that about Good Ranchers. You always forget chicken. I do. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> you need to issue an apology to the chicken industry. I do. I'm so sorry to the chicken industry that I forget you in Good Ranchers. <laughs> Yes. And chicken, because it is true. I do like I, that is something that's a value that I appreciate is knowing where that like my meat comes from. And so chicken also. Thank you. And I do think I mean, we have people tuning in that are raising their own animals. Beef is a very common one. Um, and sometimes we feel like we can easily source, you know, online our direct to consumer beef. And sometimes maybe it feels a little more overwhelming to directly source, you know, from a seafood industry, like, if, like, where do we source a direct to consumer stripper, you know, and so I do love that they are offering that USA access to all of the animal proteins, like you said, across the entire board. So if you have a freezer full of your own, you know, meat, maybe still consider adding, you know, seafood, pork, chicken, to that, um, that is sourced from good ranchers. I know that's what we do. We obviously raise our own beef, but I source from good ranchers for all the other proteins. Uh, producer Maddie said the same thing. She was like, obviously, we're beef producers, but we get our seafood and our chicken now from Good Ranchers. And our code this month is worth $30 off your box, and it is free express shipping on your box. So American meat delivered straight to your door and seafood and chicken and pork and all of the proteins. So 
go to goodranchers.com and enter your code discover for $30 off. Again, that's goodranchers.com to get American meat delivered. All right, diving into the second headline you need to discover this week, title Ozempic is on the rise. That could be a problem for food companies. With prescriptions for semaglutide drugs, including Wegovy and Ozempic on the rise, food sellers are increasingly fielding questions about the possibility of a significant shift in how or how much people eat. I have to ask you, is the Ozempic craze big where you're at. So I think people think this is like a brand new drug that just kind of hit the market because we see it in headlines now. But it we have been prescribing it for the treatment of type 2 diabetes for years now. Okay, so I I feel like you did not answer that question. I feel like it's going crazy in our town. Like I know a lot of people that are taking it for weight loss. I guess I don't know anyone personally that's taking it for weight loss. But I'm in like town of like 2000 people, you know. I mean, I'm not in like a booming metropolis either. I mean, I times. am right now, but I'm not <laughs> Yeah, but I, I think it's different. I don't know. New Mexico, where I'm from in New Mexico is not like a big town. I mean, I know it's bigger in population than yours, but it still seems kind of shocking to me. It makes me think that it's everywhere. Oh, producer Maddie, it's big in Texas. Not surprised. I wonder if it's like an area thing. So I saw a graph uh, that I screenshotted. Let me get to it in my camera roll here. It showed the United States map and then it had the dots where it's being prescribed off-label. So it's going to be off-label if you're using it for weight loss, Ozempic. And there was a 583% increase in off-label prescriptions of Ozempic in New York more than any other market. So I do think it is definitely generalized to certain areas. Um, I mean, there's a lot goes goes into that. And people, there is actually articles I was reading that have talked about like um, availability of Ozempic to different races and different lifestyle classes. And so I think depending on a lot of different factors, we're going to see Ozempic, you know, being prescribed and used in a lot, like maybe more concentrated areas than other places. So currently, 1.7% of American population is prescribed some type of this drug in 2023, and that is up 40-fold in the past five years. And so going back to the article, that's a lot of Americans. That's, like a, that's a significant amount of the population that is having their appetite reduced. And so I... And all the times I thought about like Ozempic and all of the you know celebrity headlines, which we can maybe get into more... I didn't think about how this could or could not impact the food companies, but it it really isn't any different than any other diet fad or trend that's going on. You know, you think about gluten-free and how much uh, food companies got on that. Like how long before it's like, you know, food portions packaged for like Ozempic basically, because I saw one celebrity thing. I think it was Sharon Osbourne who was like, I basically just forgot to eat for the last three days. And so I wonder if there will be some kind of marketing for food companies that comes out that's like, okay, here is getting your nutrients in small condensed portions that fit your like Ozempic needs. I don't know. That's where my mind went with like how food companies are going to use this to market some kind of new product. Okay, so many train of thoughts. I don't know where to branch off from you and start discussion because there's actually a lot I want to say about what you said. But I guess sticking with like the food company thing, the CEO of Walmart was quoted saying that um, they have internal data running as a, a, you know, Walmart itself is looking into this, which I think is fascinating. But it suggests that customers who take Ozempic purchase slightly less food than the total population. He cautioned that it's too early to draw any conclusions from that data. But he definitely talked about how they're going to, you know, keep monitoring it. And um, there was another food company that was talking about for, you know, like, basically, as you mentioned, like, adjusting as a company pivoting as a company to meet the changes of the consumers who are possibly being 
if the results are being possibly swayed by Ozempic. So they were talking about how, let's say they go to smaller portions, you know, then we design smaller portions, like we change our packaging for that. If they want different nutrients, then we change like to meet those different nutrient requests. If they want package sizes, snacks, as you mentioned, like they would look as a company to adjust to that. And I think that is so fascinating that one drug could have that much power on, you know, the big food, big food company, right? Okay, you like skated right over Walmart. Does anyone else think it's crazy that Walmart knows whether you're on Ozempic or not and then is tracking how much food you are buying or buying less of? It's crazy, the world we live in. Totally wild. That's wild. So something you said before, going back to how I had so many train of thoughts, you talked about how you hadn't thought about this use of Ozempic, what the ripple effects would have for the food industry. Another thing that I was reading in a lot of articles that I don't think people are thinking about when it comes to Ozempic is how it affects the people with diabetes that are on this medication. Because there are a lot of drug shortages since Ozempic has been obviously being prescribed much larger fold for this off-label use of weight loss. There has been instances where the type 2 diabetic patients are, you know, unable to reliably get their medication. And so it becomes a problem for the off-label use. And then to take that one step further, people are like, well, who says, though, that, you know, obesity isn't as important to treat as diabetes? And so it gets into a whole, like, ethical dialogue of, you know, what we should be prescribing these medicines for, who should have a right to them. And it was honestly, again, pretty fascinating to, like, think about that train of thought and dive it layer deep into it. But yes, out demand is outpacing um, supply right now. And so there is like concerns for who needs this drug more or less. But I do think it'll die out because a lot of the celebrities, there's been some research done on people that have already been on it for a while. And then um, a lot of talk in the celebrity world about this, that once you go off of it, most patients gain back the weight, all of it, if not more, by a year. It is very hard to keep the weight off because you haven't actually made any lifestyle changes. So will this be kind of like any of the other diet fads we've seen where ultimately when you gain all the weight back, like you can't continue, I don't know, maybe you can be on it forever. I bet you can. It can't be good. It can't be that good for you. I've seen studies about, you know, bone density um, loss with it, uh, muscle mass loss. Like there is definitely side effects. I know someone that was on it that ended up with severe like vomiting from side effects, which is on the extreme end. But I could see it ultimately phasing out. But maybe I'm wrong. Actually, GI effects are one of the most common effects. So if they take it, abdominal pain, like constipation, diarrhea, nausea, those are the most common symptoms to experience when you're on it. So yeah, it is, you know, it is interesting to see who's willing to tolerate some of the side effects that come with it for if we're just treating it again off-label for weight loss. Yeah, it's not cheap to be on it. It's very costly, especially I would guess off-label, then it's not covered by insurance. I I don't know how all the back end of that works, but it is expensive. My favorite quote from this or most powerful quote is that these kind of drugs have the potential to have a bigger impact on food consumption, arguably more than anything we've ever seen before. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a bold statement. One other thing that's kind of like off of the Ozempic, but still along this train of thought that I hadn't really like connected the dots on, but apparently food companies are phasing out the word diet. Like instead of diet Coke, it is now like Coke zero. So they're using words that now are more like culturally and socially appropriate for this day and age. So one of the last things I'll mention about this that I thought was really interesting, because I feel like I've kind of been on a mental health kick is that there was an article that was talking about how the risk of semaglutide in published literature have largely focused on medical outcomes, but they're starting to look at maybe the potential of like the mental health side of it. 
So there have been reported from people using it that Ozempic like alters the way food tastes. And then it can strip, like you said, the people of the desire to eat. Like you talked about how Sharon was kind of like, oh, well, I just forgot. And they were saying that for someone who normally drives a lot of pressure from food or enjoys eating out with friends, you know, this side effect could be problematic um, when it comes to a um, more you know, mental side. And I thought that was really interesting. And it goes back to also, I was reading articles, you know, you mentioned how we view diet, body image as a society and everything that falls under that umbrella. And there were articles talking about um, what will, if everyone can go on Ozempic and everyone can be at like a less weight, like what will do that to us as a society, as our perception, you know, as our expectations. And I thought that was also obviously a very like, kind of down the line ripple effect that we obviously haven't thought very much about of like what we as a society view, you know, standard weight as anymore or acceptable weight or, you know, people who like don't fall within that, um, which obviously opens up a very big like mental health um, problem, I think, for society. Yeah, I had not thought about like the food. Um, Obviously, I'm a big foodie over here. I derive a ton of joy of like going out to eat, picking out meals, enjoying food with friends. So um, I hadn't thought about the mental health side of things. But the uh, last thing you said makes a ton of sense. I mean, just like with filters on Instagram and all of those things, we are absolutely like altering how we see ourselves and our bodies and and see others. Okay, moving on. Something we have been sharing about or I've been sharing about on my Instagram stories that I kind of want to bring over to the podcast is my favorite beef tallow brand, Tubes & Co. Uh, I have been using them for pretty much my entire skincare makeup line for, gosh, it's been like maybe six weeks, eight weeks. It's been a while. It's been since summer for sure. And just want to share how much I love them and what I'm using I am a stand for them. I don't know if I'll... The dry shampoo, I don't think I'll ever go back. Their dry shampoo is a powder-based instead of a spray, and I love it. I actually sent one of your stories when you shared it on Instagram to a couple of my friends that I know do dry shampoo, and I was like, you absolutely need to look into this. If Tara loves it, you're going to love it. But I agree. I think one of my favorite things about Tubes & Co., I do love that they're all-encompassing. So lots of times I feel like you're trying to you know, make a change for maybe a cleaner uh, product or you know, like a animal-based product um, and you feel a little limited, like you're like, oh, I can only get it for, you know, my moisturizer and that's it. You have to like have trouble sourcing elsewhere or like looking elsewhere. And Tubes and Go has like everything, literally everything you could want. And so it is really nice that it's like a one-stop shop, I think, if you're looking to make that change for your skin um, or your makeup. I completely agree because I did the dry shampoo. I did the deodorant. I'm doing the makeup. I'm doing the moisturizer. And I love that it was just like, okay, I really want to make a change with everything. And it's like a clean slate across the board. Their deodorant, this is the first natural deodorant I've ever used. So I don't have anything to compare it to, but I am ordering it again and really like it. I'm also, I just this week, I use it for my foundation and I made the change to like a winter color. Um, I was using the pecan pecan, however everyone says it. Uh, But I went to a lighter color as I'm transitioning into winter. And then I also use the blush. And then one of my favorites, which is um, actually a serum, serum is the hobo, ho, 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 ba. Did I say that right? Ho, ho, ba. Thank you. That's how it is. Ho, ho, ba. Uh, Serum. And I love it um, for my serum. So wide variety of products. You can use our code DISCOVER to get you a discount. Um, And it's just a really beautiful company. Like their packaging is great. I don't know. I love a beauty and skincare routine that when it arrives, it feels like you're at a spa. And that's totally how I feel with Tubes & Co. 
One other thing I want to mention, we want to give a shout out to a podcast before we move on to the next article. Uh, We are shouting out today, Good Dirt. Their tagline is Sustainable Living Explained. It is Live Slowly. And so a little bit about Good Dirt. Good Dirt is a production of Lady Farmer, a sustainable apparel and lifestyle brand founded in 2016 by a mother-daughter duo. Uh, And so they are exploring all the aspects of sustainable lifestyle with healthy soil as the touch point and a metaphor for healing our relationships with the planet. I personally love that it's a mother-daughter and that they are bringing you, you know, weekly interviews with farmers, artists, authors, leaders, all in the regenerative and sustainable living spaces. All right, moving into the third and final article to discover this week title are you a vegetarian question mark it may be in your genes eating plant-based is good for the environment but it might be easier for some people than others i'm gonna start with my least favorite thing you said there and that is the eating plant-based is good for the environment says who what real like i there is so this is at this point i feel like accountability in articles anymore is not really. out the window yeah people don't care It also opened with the fact that more people than ever are talking about cutting back on meat, whether they're calling themselves vegetarians, vegans, reducitarians, flexitarians, pescatarians, except for that people are not eating less meat. People are eating more meat than ever before. So it was uh, there was a little bit of like contradiction in this article of things they said and then the actual stats to back them up not being there. I did think it was interesting how they started as well, choosing to show that juxtaposition. So study details, the research compared the genomes of 5,324 strict vegetarians, which they defined as people who had not consumed any animal flesh in the past year, to 329,000, basically a little over that, non-vegetarians in a database. And they found a link between a marker for one genetic location, or what they refer to as an SNP, and people who don't eat meat. The problem, though, going back to what you said, that um, they have identified 34 individual genes that are associated with vegetarianism because, as we know, this study basically does a correlation, correlation, not causation. So you cannot conclusively say that this trait in question, this gene is causing people not to be eating meat. They actually went into a ton of different things, which we can get into about other influencing factors or what this could mean. Um, But again, like, as we know it, this is the downfalls of food studies. It's just correlation, not causation. Yeah, but it's also like not surprising to me. Like, I feel like scientists have known for a long time that like certain foods, depending on what gene, like, did you do ever do that at science experiment and like your high school where you like tasted something and some kids in the class could taste it? Some people couldn't like it either tasted like nothing or it tasted really bad and it's even like similar to cilantro like do you like cilantro or are you a I person who cilantro. Can, so people cilantro would either taste really good daniel falls in the camp or it tastes like soap i think i'm somewhere in the middle i don't like it but it doesn't taste like soap to me and then similar with um dairy like maybe this is just something i've heard a lot about but like if you are from like an asian descendant descendants, you will not be able to digest dairy as easily. If you are a European descendant, you can much easier digest dairy. And it has to do with the fact that like we evolved with dairy in Europe for a longer, I mean, for tens of thousands of years, whereas they didn't in Asia. And so I don't know, to me, I was just kind of like, well, duh, like there is some going to be some kind of like gene or hereditary component to the foods we eat based on like how we evolved with them. Also, something we have to take into consideration with like veganism is more than just genes. It's 
also like what food options are available in different places and how hard it is to make that choice. Like or if you're in a major city with like a higher like socioeconomic availability, you may be able to buy foods that are similar to their animal protein counterparts and be able to pay like a premium on whatever it is or be able to buy like more fruits and vegetables. And so some of it I do think is like social more than genes, social and location more than genes. For sure. I mean, there's a lot of research that shows shows that social connections and available food options have like the strongest effects of whether someone maintains a vegetarian diet or not. I just think it's so fascinating that they're basically giving a reason for why someone who wants to try to be vegan but can't for whatever reason, you could possibly be like, well, it's just not in my genetics. That's what I'm going to say from now on. It's just not in my genetics. <laughs> that is a great, like when Luke's like, do you want to go help sort cows and be like, you know what? It's just not really in my genetics to sort no, cows. My ancestors didn't do that. I'm sorry. You're on your own. <laughs> it's going to be my response to everything. It is the new cover tagline. Not in my genes. <laughs> mm, not in my genetics. Not my chemical makeup, you know? I kind of dove into the part of this article that was about why people choose to be vegan. And most people say it's for health reasons, not the environment, because it got into some environmental stats, which I went back and kind of fact checked them. And they were kind of, I don't know, they were not being very straightforward on their environmental impact of animal agriculture. Uh, But it still was kind of fascinating the trends we're seeing of why people are choosing to be vegan. And the health is still like number one. They say it's healthier. And then environment was kind of on the rise. They also gave the classic like if you adopt a vegan diet, you are reducing your carbon footprint by equivalent of one international flight a year. And to me, I feel like they say that thinking it has like a bigger impact on people. But I was like, that's doesn't seem like that much in contrast of like what my nutrient dense foods are worth to me and the health benefits of like animal protein in my diet. Like in my mind, I just was like, that does not feel like a fair comparison. So I don't know that it's worth that trade off. Going back to a theme we've talked about with each article, how important marketing, you know, is, I mean, that would be a great thing for, um, any beef industry to maybe look into is like, how could we do better marketing around this misconception that, you know, vegan vegetarian is actually better for your health, because it's obviously a pain point of consumers, it's very important to them. Um, So maybe there needs to be better done on our end of, you know, what that actually looks like when you're consuming animal proteins versus not. Um, All right, I don't have much more to add. Do you have anything else you want to add on this article? Or should we jump into our mini interview with Evan um, from Duckworth? Let's get into it. All right. Evan Helly is a fourth-generation Montana sheep rancher, straddling two worlds, helping ensure his family's prized Rambouillet Merino sheep that grow the very best fleece possible each year, despite facing hostile Montana weather conditions, landscapes, and predators, while also serving as Duckworth's production manager, ensuring that very same fleece is used most efficiently for American-made products that have earned the company a cult following among outdoor living folk. A husband and father, Evan spends his free time skiing, snowmobiling, and competing in enduro motocross races. Welcome to Discover Ag, Evan. Thank you. So our community has heard us reference Sheep Trail quite a bit, um, but today we want to focus more on your guys' 
uh, company Duckworth, which is a sheep to shelf um, wool company. So I want to start at the beginning. Go ahead and share with everyone listening a little bit more about Duckworth as a company, um, the mission behind it, kind of its starting point. So the idea for Duckworth had kind of been in the works for a long time in, in my family. So um, my dad had been working really hard to get wool quality up to, to really high standards. And um, he's kind of tired of getting commodity prices for a above average product. So he was looking for different avenues to sell it and um, just happened to meet the right people at the right time. Happened to be on a chairlift here in, in Montana and uh, over a few ski runs and a few chairlift rides, we kind of hatched the idea um, of connecting the end consumer with the actual raw materials. So we want to talk more about kind of um, those past 10 years and some challenges. But before that, I kind of want to ask you a little bit about the wool in the United States, what the industry is like. Are we seeing a declining, a growing? Like, what is wool looking like here in the U.S. as far as production and even consumption? Yeah, so wool is a very small part of of the textile industry um, in total. But here in the U.S., we actually, believe it or not, export about 50% of our wool. Um, So a lot of the wool gets exported. Um, A lot of the stuff that gets exported is the lower quality. Um, But the real backbone of the American wool industry is military. Those military contracts really bolster the, the U.S. wool industry. But outside of that, it's um, dwindling. It's it's really kind of moved offshore in the past 40 years. Um, but I can see even in the last 10 years of Duckworth, I can see a big change that we've started to make in the industry. I think it's funny how aware we are that we're a global marketplace and how easily we forget all the things we export and really that opportunity that lies then in us as um, you know the United States to grow and really seize opportunity instead of exporting it to maybe use it, um, you know, here. I remember back when we were together with you in July, you talking about how we have kind of steered away from wool, as you've been talking about. I mean, you talked about the military really uses it. And then there are some core pieces in our wardrobe that we tend to gravitate towards. But there was a point in society when wool was like our number one fiber, like satin, you know, satin wool. I don't know. Those were like the most common ones you think of. It's crazy how far we've drifted. Yeah, it it, it really is crazy. The, the United States textile industry used to be massive. It was huge. Um, uh, all across the South and the East Coast, there was massive industry. Um, you know, we were self-sufficient. We were making all our own clothing and that started to get offshore. Um, ever since, it's really been a slow decline. I mean, the sheep industry has been declining at about 2% for the past, I think, 30 years or something like that. So um, the sheep industry has been has been in a steady state of decline. Um, a lot of that's driven by land availability. Um, also, a lot of the ranches are switching to cattle um, because there's not, such, not so good of a wool market anymore. Um, the, another interesting fact is uh, about 70% of lamb consumed in the U.S. is actually imported. And so our competitors, um, largely New Zealand, can grow lamb a lot cheaper than we can. They don't have any natural predators in, in New Zealand um, besides flies, I guess. <laughs> so here um, we've got all sorts of predators. We've got a little bit different kind of landscape. So our costs are a little higher. And I think that's also part of the part of the decline reason there. Um, 
So really it's kind of been a, a, a motto of mine is to rebuild the American textile industry. So just a little bit at a time we're we're bringing back factories, um, we're kind of forging new relationships and, and building up the supply chain and really onshoring a lot of this production. I mean, we can, what, what we manufacture just in the United States um, has such a smaller footprint than everything that's coming overseas. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if in the next, you said in like the last 10 years, I wonder if in the next 10 years, we will see a shift back towards more wool like i see the movement of like what's going on with like beef tallow right now and like this skincare world and uh as more and more pressure is on like fast fashion and what's going on there and how much like synthetic fibers are ending up like in our oceans i personally i'm hopeful that maybe the pendulum will swing in the other direction and we will see more of these natural fibers like coming back around and people like taking pride in a piece that may like last you for decades instead of you know a single season um and wool being at that uh, one thing that you kind of hinted at is the breed of sheep that you guys ra- raise there at uh, Duckworth. And I actually found that fascinating. Uh, you were talking about like how their diets impact the wool and all of those things. Like so much is about the actual sheep from the breeds to the weather they experience to everything that goes into making Duckworth wool what it is. Yeah. So we, uh, the breed we use is called the Rambouillet, which is the French Merino. Um, there's kind of the origination of the finer wooled sheep or all the merino types. So um, back in in like the 1600s in in Spain was was kind of the origination point there. The sheep that were brought over here were probably brought over in the 1800s, maybe a little earlier. Um, the first sheep to come into Montana was actually before it was a state, and it was in the same valley that my family ranches sheep uh, now. So it's been over 150 years of of uh, sheep heritage here. Yeah, I remember being um, out on Sheep Trail, which for people listening in who maybe don't have the context, Sheep Trail is a uh, over a week-long journey that Evan makes um, on their operation, and they are essentially moving their sheep from the low grounds um, at the end of summer up into high alpine pastures so that they have green grass for all of summer. But I remember when we were out there, you guys so kindly clothed us in some Duckworth, and it was um, pretty interesting, you know, it's one thing to hear you talk about um, what wool can do and all of these features that, you know, like you said, the Rambouillet sheep has and the environment and and all these things and what that means for the fiber. And it's quite another to actually experience it. Yeah, it it is a big uh, trek to get the sheep from the low river bottoms all the way up to almost 10,000 feet in elevation. Um, But it kind of goes back to it's it's honestly really a natural migration. I mean, the elk and the deer do the same migration every year as well. It's a really sustainable way to use the land and it really keeps the land fresh, keeps it healthy to have animals out there grazing, just like the land has been evolving for for millions of years. Yeah. One of the things we learned while we were out there too, is that like the sheep eat different things than cattle. There also is like a poisonous plant that's poisonous to cattle, but not to sheep. And so the sheep are, you like graze the sheep first so that it removes that plant species from before the cattle graze. Like it's really cool. The entire, looking at the entire ecosystem and how they can all work together to be able to use the same piece of land at like different times throughout the year uh, and all benefit each other in different ways. Uh, moving from the ranch, we hinted at this, that you kind of do both. You're on the Duckworth side and the ranch side. What drew you to be a part of more the production side of the clothing at Duckworth? 
I think I've always just been kind of a problem solver. So I graduated college in 2014 and we started Duckworth kind of at late 2013. And in 2014 was the first year that we sold products. So I kind of just left college uh, with a business degree and and in economics. So I I just kind of jumped in head first um, with this company. And uh, I really enjoyed the business aspect of it as well. And a startup is a lot of fun. I mean, there's no day is the same. Uh, you kind of get to wear a lot of different hats and do a bunch of different things. So we're well, I think we're well out of the startup phase, but uh, it was just a, a lot of fun solving problems, applying business, um, traveling, traveling back east and visiting the factories. So I kind of found myself in the position of just um, just hands on in the company at whatever needed the most, um, whatever needed the most uh time and effort. Um, I guess the way I usually put it is just putting out fires. Yeah. Along with getting to, you know, hang out with you guys on the ranch and out in the mountains, we also got to meet a lot of your team members at Dutworth. And I do think you guys have grown something really impressive there. And I actually want to dive deeper into that because I think it is one thing for listeners to, um, you know, hear or understand that Duckworth is, you know, from sheep to shelf. So pasture, you know, for you guys to be able to buy it. I think it's another to kind of go layers deep and understand that. And so I would love it if you could kind of just walk us through maybe at a, you know, fairly um, higher level of what your guys's production chain looks like, because it's all US made. I know that's something you guys really stand on and you guys are pretty big in the community in Montana. And so maybe walk through some of that ethos and, and what that looks like practically for you guys to be, uh, you know, 100% USA company. Yeah. So, um, interestingly, the majority of the wool starts in the Rocky mountain region. So, um, with Duckworth has been growing so fast, we're outsourcing um, or outgrowing the, the the supply of wool that we have on our own ranch. So we've been reaching out to people that also share the same genetics as us that that have that heli rambolade genetics and high quality wool. Um, so we we kind of start out in the Rocky Mountain region and consolidate the wool into warehouses, um, and then at a certain point that gets trucked down to uh, the south, and it really all starts in South Carolina. Um, from there, the wool gets processed from greasy wool into top, which essentially is just combing that wool from it being a bunched up kind of kind of a pile of wool to making it into a usable like rope, essentially. Um, then from that stage, it just goes on to spinning. Um, there's several different spinners. Um, it'll go to knitting after that. Um, several different knitting facilities, depending on what we're making. Um, sometimes we'll knit a fabric that'll go on to more production. Sometimes we'll knit like a, a beanie cap, like a hat. And then that'll be the end of the line for that. Um, after knitting, we typically dye our fabrics piece dyed. So that means that the fabric goes in grayish, which is the natural color of the wool. And then we dye the rolls of fabric, um, to look like the shirt I'm wearing. Then it would then go to a cut and sew. So, um, all in all, it, it starts out in Montana, goes to the south, bounces all over the U.S., and then it does come back. We have warehouses in uh, South Carolina and also warehouses in Montana that will then ship through the website um, coming full circle. But all in all, I think last time I added it up, it's about 23 factories in 11 states. Um, that constitutes the supply chain. So a lot of people don't realize how many steps there are, but Typically in the U.S., each factory is, it's actually a small family business for the most part. Um, some of them are bigger corporate factories, but 
um, they specialize in one process. So that factory only makes this type of yarn. And so that's why the the number of factories is so big. But um, the footprint there is just sounds big, but it's technically a lot smaller than our competitors that are shipping it all over the globe. Yeah, there's a picture on your website that I think it really highlights that factor. And it's like all the barges coming, you know, from overseas of bringing clothing in. And then it is a picture of your sheep out on, you know, Montana range. And yeah, so even though it's traveling across the country, it's not necessarily traveling across the world, which is really incredible. Uh, One of the things that I loved, you mentioned like how many different factories there are because they're very specialized is you guys have a wide variety of products. Like there is so many things. Like I know we got a t-shirt, we got a jacket that you wouldn't know is like wool necessarily. Then we got like the cool pullovers. And then my favorite was kind of the socks you guys have coming out. I don't know exactly when they are, but the actual design on the sock is the mountain range that the sheep like are grazing, which is really cool. And so a lot of your designs have real purpose, like have, you know, connect back to the ranch, uh, which is quite incredible. Yeah, we're we're always trying to tell that story and people don't really realize how clothing really is connected to to the land. And like you said, we have a lot of different products. So there's different grades of wool. And so one thing that we do that's a little unique is we sort the wool as we're shearing it. So we have a computer there that sorts every individual fleece. And at that stage, we can kind of know based on the properties of that individual's fleece which type of product it's going to make and which type of product it'll be best for. And so we can kind of send that wool down a different route if it's good for socks or another route for it's, if it's good for t-shirts. One thing you mentioned shearing, and I feel like shearing can be kind of like a hot topic as far as people having a lot of misunderstandings of what shearing's like. I think there's a lot of like actus, actus, activist videos out there that show it like in a bad light. But I mean, we saw the sheep right after they had been sheared and it seems like a pretty straightforward like haircut and not a whole, whole lot more than that. Can you just speak to that a little bit just to put people's like minds at ease a little bit that have maybe like seen something that is misleading or untrue? Yeah. So PETA kind of made a campaign going out. Never heard of them. <laughs> never, never bothered the cattle industry ever. <laughs> yeah. So they, they made a specific com- campaign going after Patagonia and that, that got some traction. Um, I mean, it's kind of a crazy story. But it's really, um, people just need to realize that our animals are our livelihood. So I'm a fourth generation rancher. I've got little kids, four and two year old, two years old that are fifth generation. And if we didn't take care of our animals, we wouldn't be here this long. And shearing is just one of those times a year. Um, the sheep don't like to be shorn, but they're also in a very comfortable position. So our sheep shears are they get um, accredited, they get trained, and then that's their profession. And um, it's a lot like shoeing a horse or or any other time you're dealing with animals is you got to make them feel comfortable. So all our shearers are really good. They're professionals at what they do. And they make that sheep as comfortable as possible. And actually, the fleece just flies off really quickly. It's, it's only um, a minute, up to two minutes, really, that it takes to get that fleece off. And so it's something that just happens really quickly and then the sheep's on their way and off they go. You know, one of my favorite things about learning more about discovering more about wool with you guys um, was how rooted in tradition it is. And you have talked about that, you know, a lot in our docuseries we're creating with you guys as, you know, this, this is one of the oldest professions. You know, it's often referred to as like an art And I think that kind of applies to like shearing too. I feel like some of these things are um, lost arts in today's society. 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, raising sheep is, is I think, believed to be like a 9,000-year-old tradition. There's stories in the Bible of people uh, herding sheep. And so it, there really is something special about still out being out herding sheep. Um, it is kind of a lost art to know how to handle a, a herd of sheep, a flock. So we're talking upwards of 3,000 animals together sometimes. Um, and you'll have your border collie dogs helping you work the sheep. And um, your job is really just to keep them grazing happily and on the best feed that, and the right feed. So um, getting a, her- a herd of sheep like that to move across the landscape is really kind of fun. And it's it's kind of uh, primal, really. Yeah, we had no fun on Sheep Trail at all. People followed us on Instagram. <laughs> no fun was had. Uh, it was pretty much like the best time. Probably the most giggly uh, Sheep Trail we've ever had. <laughs> Oh my gosh, you uh, loved having us out. We were so much fun. <laughs> He's like, no, never again. It was great, you guys are good help. Uh, we, we did put us to work. I will say we earned our keep a little bit. We didn't just tag along all the time. That is a really good point. That is something we love to do at Duckworth is anytime we bring anybody out, we put them to work right, on, right away, put them to work on the ranch. So um, one of the events that we have every year is called Shear and Shred. So we bring in a bunch of people connected with Duckworth, journalists, investors, store owners, um, uh, photographers, and we bring them all to shearing and we let them get their hands dirty. And I think that's such a great way of helping people tell our story is to let them experience it. And once they get to just feel the wool and kind of see the process, it just all makes sense. It's such a simple thing to just take wool from a sheep and make clothing. (laughs) Yeah, it was um, truly incredible to be a part of it. And I'm glad we we got to be that short two days um, piece of it and get to see it. Uh, we're so thankful that you had us out. And we're so thankful today that you came on to share more about Duckworth. I know that people were really interested. I both Natalie and I had so many questions about the products from uh, in our DMs. And so being able to highlight this, uh, we really loved it. So thanks for taking the time today. We will definitely tag uh, or include a link in our show notes to Duckworth where you guys can go check them out. Maybe we'll link some of our favorite products as well in the Discover Ag stories. Um, But thank you, Evan, for coming on. This has been a 58 Ember production. For more shows, please visit the 58 Ember channel, 58ember.com, or find us at 58 Ember Media on socials.